Uh, thank you very much for inviting me along to the Paediatric Emergencies Conference 2020. Uh, I'm Tom Waterfield and I'm a Paediatric Emergency Medicine Consultant and a Clinical Lecturer at Queen's University Belfast. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you today about recognition of the sick child. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about recognition of the sick child or particularly the approach to young infants, uh, particularly with a fever, then there are podcasts available on the Paediatric Emergency website. Uh, and there's some details of those there on the screen now. So the aim of my talk today is to really talk about um, children that present acutely to either general practice, um, pre-hospital settings, um, A&E, and it's aimed really at, at anyone that would have to work with a, an acutely unwell child all the way through from kind of pre-hospital all the way up to the paediatrician. Um, Primarily what we see in the emergency department are previously well children with febrile illnesses. So that will be the bulk of this talk, uh, although we will cover some other areas. And the aims today are to go through um, risk stratification. So by that I mean trying to determine who is high risk before you even see the child. Uh, a little bit about the history and what the kind of key points are to try and get from the history. A little bit about observation. So actually what we can get from observing a child from a distance. Um, a little bit about vital signs of observations, um, some key points for the examination and some discussion of red flags, um, particularly focusing on kind of nice guidance and sepsis guidance. And there's a picture there of a puzzle. Um, the, the way I try to think about this is very much like a jigsaw puzzle. There is unfortunately still no single piece, whether that be a piece of history, uh, a clinical feature, um, or a blood biomarker that can tell us whether a child has a serious infection or a serious illness. We have to get all the different pieces and put them together to build a picture. And unfortunately in paediatrics, some of the pieces um, aren't even given to us. We have to go looking for them. We have to ask the right questions and examine for the right things to actually get them. So risk stratification. So the, the point of this really is, um, if, just like in the pictures there, there are some activities that you can see which you would know are risky. If someone told you you were going to do ball running in Spain, you'd have some concerns even before they went that they might, they might come to some harm. And it's a little bit like that in paediatrics. So it's important to note that most of our guidelines and our, our evidence and our practice is built around research of healthy children. On the, on the whole, they exclude children with underlying health problems. So in terms of the risk stratification, you want to think before you even see this child, do the, the guidelines that we know about it apply directly to this group and are they a higher risk of something going wrong? So kind of one of the most obvious examples there are um, newborns or neonates, so children under a month. So it's kind of as our background, the study from Australia, still a bit old now, but still I think holds true with the fever study which looked at children in the emergency department. And they reported that about 14% had serious infections. Now that's a slight overestimation and that kind of reflects in their own data. Um, with quite a high proportion of pneumonias which were probably viral and it probably explains why about one in three of their children with serious infections by research definitions got better without treatment. But if we take that as a kind of baseline population, you know, 14% of children with fever and ED may have some sort of infection that's, that's a little bit more serious. Um, let's look at children under a month. So we've taken quite a high estimate. If we take children under a month, probably some of the best data comes from the Spanish group and the step-by-step -step study, which was 2,000 children across Spain and Italy um, from kind of 2015-2016. And they had a 26% uh, likelihood of serious infection, four times the risk of uh, invasive infection. So even against kind of pretty um, high estimates in older children, neonates are still far higher risk. 
So that's one of the first things. So, so children a month are very high, under a month are very high risk, particularly if they're presenting with a febrile illness. Um, and that group of children, uh, we have a very low threshold for discussing with paediatrics. So we'd expect all, kind of all children under a month um, to, to have undergo a septic screen, and, and only really in exceptional circumstances would they not. Other things that you may see, so um, ex-premature infants, so uh, graduates from the NICU, they may have underlying chronic lung disease, so they may have home oxygen, like in the picture there, um, which would make them more vulnerable even to common illnesses like kind of the common cold, rhinovirus, for example. Um, they may have underlying poor health, um, and all of these will make them more susceptible to kind of common everyday illnesses. And then age, and I've expanded the age a little bit here. So under a month, the risk of serious infection is much higher. So that's actually a real risk, if you like. And between one and three months, that risk drops away pretty quickly. And by the time you get to six months, actually the risk of serious infection is pretty similar to that of a two, three, four-year-old. But actually I've included all the way up to a year there. And the reason I've included a year is actually a bit like we talked about the puzzle pieces and trying to kind of, some of them aren't obvious for us. Children under a year actually can be quite difficult to assess if you're not comfortable and experienced with that age group. Their physiology is spectacular. They're incredibly fit. They're like little Olympic athletes, so they can cope incredibly well with quite nasty infections for quite long periods. Um, they're not verbal yet, and actually the examinations can be challenging. So certainly under a month, you need to be aware that the risk is very high of serious infection if they're febrile. Um, that probably doesn't drop away until somewhere between three and six months. But certainly, depending on your experience, um, most paediatricians would be happy to assess a child under one if you had any concerns at all about their appearance. So with that risk stratification in mind, that's just helping for you to kind of identify who's at high risk of something more nasty um, before, before you even start talking to the family. Um, history, so today you'll probably hear lots of things that you must ask for in the history. Um, like the cardiologist colleagues will have things they want, the metabolic team will have things that they want. Um, I try and keep this very simple. So we're focusing here on, is this child very sick? Um, Again, if we say most, most children that we see will be a febrile illness, fever is the main reason that people attend GP and A&E. So you need to clarify the points for the parents. You know, we're all now practicing um, medics in some way or another, and it's not, it's not enough just to kind of repeat or copy down what the parents have said. We need to try and clarify and understand what those points are. In particular, ask around the duration of the illness. So most febrile illnesses last three to five days. If it's going on for more than five days, why is that? Is it a secondary reinfection? Have they got an underlying malignant process? Is this an inflammatory condition? Ask about what's happening in between the temperatures. So most self-limiting illnesses have a natural variation during the day. So they may look dreadful during the fever. They may be mottled, miserable, um, clingy, irritable. They could have many of the features which would be on many sepsis checklists. But actually the temperature when it wasn't there, you know, the child was eating, drinking, playing with a dog, you know, near enough back to normal. And it's that variation which we would normally see with most self-limiting illnesses. So ask about form, play, behavior. What's that like when the temperature's not there? Think about intake. So you can ask about wet nappies, how much they're eating and drinking. Um, food intake isn't too worrying, certainly for two or three days, but fluids um, are obviously more concerning. So we need to make sure that children are getting enough fluid in. And then I just put a note there, but always beware of the child that's been lethargic, unwell all day without variation. I'm always very concerned about the parent that says, you know what, there was a lot of up and down for the first couple of days, but today all they've wanted to do is sleep on the sofa, even when they've not got a temperature.
So for those of you um, that are nervous about examining children, this point, this part of the, the scenario is really useful for you. So um, it can be difficult to examine children, uh, especially young children. They can be a little bit nervous of us. We're now increasingly wearing PPE. Um, the interactions are becoming more and more challenging. So use observation. If you notice, people that are used to working with children will often take a history, will stand back in the corner of the room, and actually most of my gaze is on the child while I'm taking the history because I'm trying to get as much information as I can whilst they're comfortable and relaxed. And actually, when you're doing the observation, think about it in a structured way. So, you know, it can be a bit nerve-wracking seeing children, and, and just think A, B, C. So from an airway point of view, if they're talking or crying, or maybe they've got strider, and maybe you can hear that at rest when they're sitting on their mum's knee, that's really important. And it's an important finding, even with, without the need for a stethoscope. Breathing, so most children under five, because that's where the challenge is for examining children, are happy in their you know, shorts or, or pants. If they've got a temperature, they may be quite comfortable being stripped, stripped down, and the parents can do that for you if you're not in a hospital setting. Um, and then you can look at their breathing. So what's their respiratory rate? You can time it. Um, what's their work of breathing? Is there a prolonged expiratory phase? Are they taking a long time to breathe out, which may be indicative of wheeze? It's a lot easier to see that prolonged expiratory phase than it is to actually hear really tight wheeze if you're not used to it. And then cardiovascular. So it's hard to do a cardiovascular exam, but actually remember most children over one, the presence or absence of a murmur is of little value. Um, you know, that, that it, it's useful in the child under one who may have an underlying cardiac problem exacerbated by a viral illness, but healthy children over one, the presence of a murmur isn't often that helpful. What is helpful is their perfusion, so what's their colour like? Are they ashen? Um, are they pale? Are they mottled? Um, and so some of that you can get just from looking. And then disability, so are they alert, active, you know, are they only responding to the voice? Um, and then an exposure. So if you strip them down, actually, do they have a rash? Are there any injuries? Is there anything else that you're worried about? So if you think now, actually, you could be quite, somebody who's quite uncomfortable seeing children, um, perhaps you work in a pre-hospital setting or you're newly qualified, and you already have an idea of who's at high risk, what are the key points in the history, and you can put together a reasonable assessment just from a couple of minutes of observation. And certainly enough that if you struggle on the examination, you'd be able to talk to your paediatric colleagues and get some advice. So observations, so we put those in, we really mean vital signs, so heart rate, respiratory rate, uh, central capillary refill time from the head or the forehead, a body temperature and oxygen saturations. And there are normal ranges and they're widely available. People that work with children every day will get used to these. Um, the important thing is that you know that, that they exist and where to find them. And there are lots of apps um, and they're also available on the internet and most departments will have them up on their walls. So just to be aware that they exist. I'm going to talk a little bit about abnormal observations in a moment, but temperature. So we get a lot of problems with fever, phobia. It's a, we get a lot of reattendances where parents are worried because their child's had another temperature. A fever really is just telling you that the child has typically an infective process. You can get fever with malignant processes and with inflammatory conditions, but in a previously well child, on the whole, it's going to be because they've got an infection. Most febrile illnesses last three to five days and the temperature will fluctuate naturally with the symptoms matching that. Um, a normal body temperature, um, traditionally people have struggled with that, we've asked that question, but with COVID people are getting more used to it, but 36.5 to 37.5 is the normal range. Um, the temperature going up, or the height of the temperature, is actually a pretty poor marker of severity, so that's one of the kind of myths that we get. So the temperature is 40, it must be a dangerous infection. Um, 
in young children, certainly under five, they're very labile with their temperatures. Um, they can have a temperature of 40 with rhinovirus and a low-grade temperature of meningococcal. And that's not, you know, just anecdotal, that's fact. So the meningococcal, the PIC study, which we ran, um, 30, 37 hospitals, 1,300 kids, 20 cases of meningococcal, uh, you know, two of those, 10% of our meningococcal cases had very low-grade temperatures, just 38. So it's not necessarily the severity of the illness indicates the height of the fever. The other one that we sometimes hear is that if the fever comes down with antipyretics, that's reassuring. And again, that isn't actually true. All that's telling you is that your antipyretics work. Um, almost any temperature will come down to some extent with antipyretics. We do, however, in A&E often give antipyretics to children who are febrile, but that's not because we need the temperature to come down. It's because it goes back to that variation. We want to assess that child without their temperature. So if you think about if you've ever had a temperature yourself or if you've got kids, a high temperature, their heart will race, they will breathe fast, they may pant, and they will be muffled. They can be miserable or they're all lethargic. All of these symptoms can occur. Um, and they're driven by the temperature. But actually, at that moment in time, they may be hitting several triggers um, on, on sepsis. Um, and you've got to make that decision quickly. You know, from my experience, I think this is a common cold, and I think it will settle, or I need to go on and start to treat with antibiotics. Um, so we bring the temperature down and reassess. So that's the key point. If you're in the community and you see a child and the temperature comes down, check the heart rate again, check the respiratory rate again, make it clear that you've seen an improvement and check with the family. Often we'll see children in the emergency department and the parents are very stressed, very worried, um, and pretty certain their child's gonna be admitted to hospital when they arrive. Um, only for 45 minutes later for them to actually say themselves volunteer that their child's much, much better and they'd be happy to go home. And there has to be that kind of agreement that you've seen that improvement in the child. There's lots of ways of bringing the temperature down. So cowpoles on the picture there, so paracetamol, you can use ibuprofen. The, the reason this is there, it's just, if you do combine paracetamol and ibuprofen, um, you will get a reduction, a greater reduction in temperature, but it's very small, 0.1.2 degrees. So it's not clinically significant. Um, and then you lose your antipyretics for, for four hours. So we tend not to give them together. We tend to try and space them out. So just, I said I would come back to kind of abnormal observations. So a lot of us are taught, and I was trained early on, you know, you don't let a child go home with abnormal observations. But, but that's probably a little bit rigid. I think the key point is that we shouldn't be um, ignoring abnormal observations, choosing to ignore them and send them home. Um, and we, shouldn't, we, should, we need to be aware of what the normal ranges are. We need to have a look. Um, but how dangerous is it to actually send someone home with abnormal observations? So this is a really nice paper that looks specifically at that. So a similar size centre to what we have in Belfast, um, it essentially looked at children um, with abnormal vital signs at the times of discharge. And they looked at adverse events. So this included readmission for prolonged, so reattendance re and prolonged admission, um, needing uh, resuscitation, needing intubation or needed surgery. And what they found was there's, there's two kind of points to take. So it is more risky if you send someone home with abnormal observations. They are more likely to reattend. But actually, it's two and a half times more likely, but from a very low risk point. So as we go back, most children we see in the emergency department actually will be able to go home. Um, most febrile illnesses are self-limiting and benign. Um, and even if we send children home with abnormal observations, the absolute risk remains very low. But the relative risk does go up. And so the kind of key point here is, I think we probably can move away from saying you can never let somebody home with abnormal observations. 
Um, but we have to be clear why we're letting them go home and communicate that plan with the family. And kind of simple examples might be you've diagnosed a child with a low respiratory tract infection, you've convinced them on treatment and they're slightly tachypneic. Well, that's okay. You can explain it, um, you can monitor the other vital signs and you can allow the, the family home with a plan. Likewise, the child with a normal heart rate on arrival in the emergency department who has salbutamol and is slightly tachycardic at discharge. We don't necessarily need to admit that child overnight just because they're tachycardic. As long as you can put the rest of the puzzle pieces to show that child isn't septic, you can communicate that risk with the family. And you can be fairly reassured that the absolute risk is pretty low. So finally, examinations. You kind of have to bite the bullet now. If you don't like working with children or it's not something you do in your day job, you'll have to get and examine them. And the reason I've got that picture, that's a recent picture of me and my family we had done uh, in, a, in a photo studio. And it looks wonderful. Like looks like we've sat and posed and just got that. But the photographer was great and, and they would have been an ideal paediatrician. So that picture came after getting them to jump off the bed, after play, and that picture's directly after they overran and jumped on us. And they managed to just capture the moment as they kind of turned around. Um, but it's that opportunistic kind of nature that you have to have as a paediatrician. So, Remember, this child is not on their best form. They've not seen you before. They've got a temperature. You're wearing PPE. They're a bit scared. They're a bit nervous. You don't need to lift them off their mum. You don't need to get them strip nipples to knees at 45 degrees like you had to for your medicine you know, finals. Um, you have to be opportunistic and think where the value is. Go back to that ABC. The airway, you can listen. You don't need to put your hands on to do that. Breathing, make sure you've had a look first. What's their respiratory rate? What's their work of breathing? Um, have they got that prolonged expiratory phase? If you're listening in, what are you listening in for? Primarily, wheeze in, in, in young children with a febrile illness. Is there any focal crackles that may help with a low respiratory tract infection? The cardiovascular exam, it's really more around pulses and perfusion. By all means, you'll listen for heart sounds, but again, in a child over one, um, young children may have cardiac lesions, and that's different, but in older children, really, they may well have a murmur, and that's likely to be flow. Um, from the kind of disability point of view, use the AVPU scale, so are they alert, responding to voice, um, pain or unresponsive. And then if you strip them at this age, you, you'll be able to look for rashes quite easily. So the physical exam is actually quite quick for the assessment of the sick child. It's more complicated for um, some of the more detailed specialties, but hopefully examining those children when they're on good form in a controlled um, environment, um, you know, and it'll be easier to perform the examination at that time. So finally, we've kind of kept away a little bit from guidelines until now. So there are lots of different guidelines. There's the NICE sepsis guideline, which has three different pathways based on age. There's the sepsis six, you know, surviving sepsis campaign, which also has algorithms for pre-hospital and in-hospital, and also specialist and non-specialist. You also have the NICE feverish illness guideline, and then not to forget, they also have the NICE meningococcal septicemia guideline. And all these guidelines overlap and don't necessarily agree. So it, it is tricky. Uh, and I'd encourage you to have a look and consider your local guidelines and, and how you might follow those. My preference still probably is the NICE feverish illness guideline. I think it has the best balance in terms of uh, allowing for assessment of a child and some decision making around safe discharge whilst also helping you spot sepsis. Um, there's actually 16 red flags in the NICE uh, feverish illness guideline um, and I still haven't met anyone yet who can kind of rattle all 16 off. Um, but I try to condense them down and want to reassure you that they're not actually that scary. So a fever under three months, well, I think well, that's, we've discussed that and you'd be happy. 
looks unwell to you. So remember, if you're, you're all now used to working with um, people or children, you're a healthcare professional, and if you think this child looks unwell, take that seriously. Um, lethargy, and I've mentioned that again, because the, beware that lack of variation, that child that's lethargic all day. Shock or dehydration, I think we'd all be worried about. Severe respiratory stress and signs of meningitis or encephalitis. So they're not that complicated, the red flags, if you break them down into those six. How reliable are the red flags? So if we go back to the same studies, um, the fever study we mentioned earlier looked at this. So the absence of a red flag um, kind of shouldn't, shouldn't be reassuring. Just because a child doesn't have red flags doesn't mean they won't have a serious infection, unfortunately. So you still have to look for some other features. But actually the presence of red flags puts the specificity up quite high. So you know, my interest is around diagnostic tests. That specificity would be similar to an abnormal white cell count or abnormal neutrophil count. So you know, if a child has an abnormal, has a presence of a red flag, actually they're, they're, they're likely to have a serious infection goes up quite significantly. So they shouldn't be ignored. Another paper looking at a similar thing kind of attached scores to red flags and then produce what's called a rock curve, which is a essentially a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity and looked at different um, studies and combined them. I think the, the point here is that they're not perfect. Um, a bit like that puzzle piece from earlier. There's no single red flag, unfortunately, that will, will tell you this child definitely has a serious infection. Um, I think the only thing that probably comes out consistently across multiple data sets and multiple studies um, is lethargy. So I mean, in proper lethargy, not feeling tired and washed out, but actually this child is hard to wake up, and if they are awake, they fall back to sleep quickly. A little bit about clinician instinct. So um, another study here, just looking at what clinicians thought. And certainly, if you think this child has a serious infection, they, there's a very good chance that they do. Um, and I would trust that instinct. I personally, like, uh, kind of like evidence-based medicine, but I don't think evidence-based medicine and instinct are separate. Hopefully, from what we've kind of pulled out in this is with the puzzle pieces, we aren't going to be replaced by Alexa. It takes some skill to take the history, um, examine the child, and pull together all the features you need. And sometimes there's lots of these little puzzle pieces that just aren't adding up or giving you an uncomfortable feeling. And it's hard to necessarily pinpoint exactly why that is. And that may be that clinician instinct. So as long as you take a, a moment to think, why am I worried? If you're still worried, trust that and, and act on it. So kind of in summary, we've um, had a kind of brief overview today of how you might look for the sick child. And I've tried to really condense it down so that it would be applicable to kind of pre-hospital, general practice, A&E, and even paediatricians. Uh, and the aim is to make it kind of easy to what's the really high value stuff that can help you spot sick kids. So we talked about risk stratifying and being aware of those children that are more vulnerable, um, and then having a think about where you are, who you are, and whether you need help with those children. We talked a bit about the history, so by all means complete a full paediatric history, but particularly we need to be clear about duration of temperatures and what's happening in between when the temperature's gone uh, and some information around um, intake and, um, and their fluid status. We talked a bit about observation, which is really key and is, is not kind of necessarily always taught. So a lot of us will spend, you know, while we're taking the history, watching that child. You can get a huge amount of information if you just put a structure to it, uh, and can nearly, nearly perform the, the major part of your examination just from the doorway. 
We talked about vital signs, the importance of knowing the normal ranges, but also some pragmatic views about actually we can send children home with abnormal observations as long as we've thought about why they're abnormal and we've communicated a plan. Um, we talked a little bit about the examination and how we can keep it brief um, and focus on the areas that we need to and a little bit of a brief discussion around red flags um, and how they might fit into our practice. So yeah, thank you very much for inviting me along um, and I look forward to, the, to watching the rest of the talks over the course of the day.